from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Joining us on this third episode of the Ditchley podcast is Stephen King, Senior Economic Advisor at HSBC Bank, and Sotilio Fiodoropoulou, Senior Researcher at the European Trade Union Institute. Welcome both of you. Thanks very much for your time. Will the medium worker do better or worse in the future? That's what we've been looking at. What's the profile of the medium worker and how, how has this developed? What we know is that uh, in the last two decades there have been indications that in many advanced uh, countries the real compensation of the median worker has not been keeping up with aggregate uh, productivity growth. This has been uh, found to have to do with uh, declining uh, labour share and also increasing earnings inequality. Looking ahead, what will be the key factors which will determine the development of pay for the medium market? <laughs> well, I think technology is playing uh, quite a significant role um, in the sense that it is altering the, the sort of bargaining position, particularly of, if you like, the nth worker. Um, we've seen this remarkable uh, experience in recent years whereby the labour market on some measures, particularly in the US and the UK, looks pretty tight. Unemployment is very, very low by historical standards. You might normally argue that under those circumstances, wages should be rising quite quickly. But I think what's happening is that technology is allowing companies to hire workers by the task rather than hiring them on a full-time basis. That leaves those workers in a relatively vulnerable position. They haven't got the bargaining experiences they might have had um, in the past. The consequence is we seem to have a, an economy uh, which is low unemployment, which is good, but at the same time is low productivity, uh, low wage growth, and low overall growth. Uh, and of course that contributes to a sense of precariousness, a sense that perhaps um, the economy is not as robust as the unemployment numbers themselves would appear to suggest. And so, Dinia, would you agree? Uh, what's the importance of technological advance and automation for the, for the medium worker, in your view? Well, in terms of wages and employment, it seems to be creating a hollowing out effect in the labour market. We have uh, machines, robots, increasingly taking over the jobs that uh, are characterized by routine tasks. These are often jobs done by medium-skilled and low-skilled people. So non-routinized jobs, on the other hand, at the upper end of the skill distribution, the low end skill distribution, uh, labor cannot be as easily substituted for by machines. So there is a pressure at the middle of, of the workers' distribution across skills uh, for the jobs to be eliminated. And if I can just add to that, I think that what you're seeing is, in many cases, particularly in clerical work, services industries as opposed to manufacturing industries, uh, people are losing jobs um, and then being forced to compete for jobs that are below their previous pay grade. But of course, that means that the people who are doing those jobs are suddenly facing more competition too. So you're seeing this kind of pressure whereby uh, for a big chunk of the uh, working population, uh, there's a kind of deflationary impact on, on wages because of that heightened competition. That's an, an interesting point. And 
obviously, there was a lot of discussion up in the room about impact of demographics and demographic change on, on pay and pay structures. Stephen King, how will this play out? Well, some views in the room were, were suggesting, well, as the population ages, you end up with a shortage of, of workers. And under those circumstances, there's a reasonable chance that those workers will receive significantly higher pay than perhaps previous generations have experienced over the last 20 or 30 years. The catch with that, of course, is that the demographics are not just a, a European story. They're a global story, and there are other forces working in completely opposite directions. So, yes, you can point to the aging populations of Europe, of China, of Japan, of uh, South Korea, and so on and so forth, and say, well, we have a worker shortage. Uh, but equally, of course, there's enormous growth of the population of working age in Africa coming through in the years ahead. And one big question that emerged during the, the debates was, to what extent is that African population immobile? Does it stay in Africa? Uh, will it be part of a global supply chain process in the future? Or instead, will many of those people choose to try to move somewhere else where the economic opportunities are, are perhaps more interesting for them? So almost as a kind of a, a repeat of what we saw in the mid-19th century of the flow of people from, from Europe across to uh, North America. There was quite a lot of discussion about how important uh, worker power is to pay. How do you see that developing in the future? We've seen the importance of unions in advanced economies have dropped significantly. How is that going to develop? It depends, I would say, on the one hand. I mean, trade union decline is indeed an issue. On the one hand, uh, it, it has to do with uh, developments that have to do with trade union membership, whether people find it worthwhile to, to join a trade union or not. But bargaining power is not only about collective representation. Uh, it also has to do with the extent to which workers can extract rents from the employment relationship. And that has to do often with the outside options to the, the job they get. Factors like tight labor markets, how high or how low unemployment is, matter. Factors like the income replacement possibilities in case of unemployment are important. So it is not just trade unions that determine how much bargaining power workers have, but also a broad context of how labor market policies and how the labor market is functioning. But I think there's a kind of a process almost of um auctioning of workers' time through through technology. So I use the example in, in the discussion about uh, hiring a van. And, and there, are, there are websites where you can simply say, I want a van and a driver to do a particular job. And you simply uh, post that onto a particular website and you get a whole bunch of bids coming in from different van drivers to offer you exactly the same service. Now, in the old days, you'd have gone past your local newspaper and seen the advert for a man with a van and, and hired that person. That would be straight straightforward. Now you have visibly in front of you as a consumer a competitive process of bidding for a particular job. So uh, obviously from a consumer's point of view that's that's pretty good news but from the point of view of competitive labour markets there's lots of people competing for that one specific delivery service. This is indeed and it's not only about local labour markets as in the case of any, any one van but it's also <laughs> there are services that can be uh, also uh, provided even from a remote location so uh, competition is even increasing through this uh, platform economy. Competition in the labour market is increasing and pressure on workers is increasing even on a more global scale. We've also seen, a, especially in a, it's a big issue in Britain, and I'm not quite sure how it figures in other European countries, but the development of uh, the way contracts have worked. So we've now got zero hours, which is a very big political issue. The gig economy, the end of job for life. So Tiria, how have these factors had an effect on, on median pay? 
Well, I am not sure whether the median worker is already the, the worker that takes up these jobs, but lo- looking into the future, if we if we assume that these precarious forms of work, they, they have been gaining importance. If they become too prevalent, of course, they are reducing this outside option that I, I, I mentioned. If someone can, cannot count on any income security or has to keep looking for new contracts every week or every month, uh, that does not have a positive effect on how strongly he or she can bargain for her wage. At the same time, I would think that such precarious forms of work are also not doing any favors to productivity growth, which for any given uh, bargaining power is a factor that determines how wages are growing. So liberalization of the job market is not necessarily all good. How can policymakers improve that process, which is obviously going to develop and continue? Well, this is tricky because the process of technology is is something that you can't really stop and also it's quite unpredictable and policy moves slowly relative to the advances in technology. So you could be like King Canute and stand up and try to prevent the waves of technology from coming in or the tides coming in. That in itself is, is, is not going to work. There are issues with regard to protecting people regardless of their specific employment circumstances. There's been a lot of debate about universal basic incomes, for example, as a way of protecting people. But I think one thing that's missing in that debate is what I describe as a sense of community that uh, people's value in terms of doing jobs is not just because they get paid at the end of the week or by the, at the end of the hour. There's a value of belonging to a particular community. There's a sort of a shared objective, if you like. And you can see it's in lots of different industries where you know, things have changed over the years. I mean, a good example is northeast of England, you know, very strong mining communities over many, many years. As a consequence of the closure of those mines, those communities have been significantly weakened. The spirit of those communities is weaker than might have been the case in the past. So I, I think that finding financial compensation itself is, is fine, it's a start, but I don't think it quite gives the sense of belonging, of community, that gives people value to their lives. I think one of the biggest problems that we have with regard to the advance of technology is how do you make people feel they're living worthwhile lives? And it's not just money alone. What role does a minimum wage play in this story and the development of a minimum wage? Well, minimum wage is, uh, can, can be useful for limiting uh, the extent to which wages can fall if, for example, demand for a certain type of worker drops. But on the other hand, there are concerns that it may uh, lead to a substitution of low-wage workers who are more likely to be doing routine jobs by machines. On the other hand, given the type of uh, technological change that we are seeing in economies, it seems to be a rising concentration of monopsony power by uh, companies, in which case a minimum wage can actually have a beneficial effect, both for workers and for economic efficiency. And Stephen King, you touched on it on, on your last answer, but it's one of the things that interested me as a non-economist, is that should we be focusing exclusively on wages? And one of the participants talked about the importance of an anxiety in work. How does that play out in the story? Economists, well, we all collectively have a problem which we tend to look at the things we can easily measure as opposed to the things that might actually matter. We can easily measure wages compared with anxiety. Anxiety, in one sense, is part of the story of, of community, the sense of belonging, the sense of having people who will look after you and, look, and you will look after them, that you'll look out for each other in certain circumstances. And, of course, with the gig economy, with zero-hours contracts and so on, where effectively you, you, are, you are your own little entrepreneur selling your services on a sort of semi-regular basis one week to the next. 
that kind of issue of community is not there. The issue of anxiety is likely to be significantly greater in, in those circumstances. So I, I think it, it is a really, really important issue, but I don't think that, I personally don't think the economics profession has got very far in thinking about how best to deal with it. It may be that uh, sociologists and others might be in a better position. And last word to you, uh, Sotiru, do you think that um, trade unions have got a better idea how to measure that and develop that? The anxiety. The anxiety, the other, the other factors beyond pay that are important um, for the media Indeed, uh, the trade unions have been, at least the European Trade Union Confederation, has been campaigning for quite a long time, not just on job quantity, but also on better job quality. And there are initiatives within the European Trade Union Confederation and the European Trade Union Institute of developing, measuring job quality, developing an indicator, and indeed aspects that could be leading to more anxiety on the job are part of this indicator. So as far as I know, the topic has not gained yet great prominence within policy circles, but the trade unions are definitely an institution that is pushing forward for that. Well, I think we heard the bell there, so I think it's probably time to move on to the next session. So to you, Theodoropoulou, Stephen King, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.